Hey everybody, it's Chad Main. We'll get to the episode in just a second, but before we do, I've got a favor to ask. If you're with an in-house legal department, maybe you're with procurement, or if you're a contract professional, or maybe you're an attorney with a government agency, we've got a survey for you. It's going to take less than two minutes. It's to help us learn more about the tech you're using and how you're delegating your resources. If you get your response in before the end of January 2023, you have a chance to win an iPad. The survey can be found at techsurvey.xyz. That's techsurvey.xyz. I know you're probably on your phone right now, so we'd really appreciate it if you go there right now, techsurvey.xyz. Thanks a lot. All right, let's get to the show. I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Precipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology and innovation in the legal industry. On today's show, we have a repeat appearance with ethics attorney Jim Dockey. He and I talk about the liberalization of rules that prohibit lawyers from sharing fees with those who are not lawyers and also prohibit lawyers from taking on investors from outside the law firm. There are court cases as far back as the early 1900s, and quite frankly, probably before that, that emphasize that the practice of law is a profession and the attorney-client relationship is one based on trust. Therefore, the reasoning went in these opinions. The judgment of lawyers shouldn't be influenced by business concerns. And for that reason, lawyers couldn't practice under business entities like corporations or take investment from others. This concern was ultimately codified in the 60s and 70s into rules of professional conduct. Those are the ethical rules that lawyers must abide by if they want to keep their law license. For many years now, most states have adopted some version of Model Rule Professional Conduct 5.4. That's a rule that's entitled Professional Independence of a Lawyer. That rule says that lawyers can't share legal fees with people who are not also lawyers, It also says that lawyers can't form a partnership with non-lawyers if any of the activities of the partnership consist of the practice of law. In recent years, the prohibition against business relationships between lawyers and those who are not lawyers has been challenged by certain members of the legal community. Much of that question has come from those involved in legal aid and those fighting for access to justice issues. Those in that camp believe that you don't necessarily need a law degree to help people out with certain legal rights, like going through a divorce or handling a custody dispute. With the right training, this thinking goes, people who are not lawyers can help out at a much lower price point, and they can provide services to those who might otherwise go unrepresented in their legal proceedings. There is also another camp that questions the need for rules like 5.4, because it's no secret that legal fees continue to increase, and that with the use of tech, project management, and defined processes, certain aspects of work can be done more efficiently and at less cost. One good example of people who are of this mind are those that work for large accounting firms. They like to handle certain legal-related work for their clients that otherwise goes to law firms. In recent years, there's been a couple states like Utah and Arizona who are testing the waters and have loosened their rules. They're now permitting lawyers to team up with others to provide legal services and also permit lawyers to share legal fees with others. Utah describes its program as a sandbox and states that it's a mechanism by which the Utah Supreme Court permits entities to offer new and innovative ideas, methods, and models of legal practice. So, by this point, you can probably see that this could be a legal ethics thicket, which is why I brought back my buddy and the ethics attorney, Jim Dopke. This is the fourth time he's been on the show. In fact, it was five years ago that we released our very first episode, and he was our guest. As always, Jim provides good insight about the ethical implication of legal rules. And specifically on this show, he provides some good insight about the pros and cons of liberalizing the rules, barring people who are not lawyers from helping out and owning interests in legal service companies. Jim practices with the Chicago firm of Robinson, Stewart, Montgomery, and Dopke. He's been in private practice since 2013, 
And before that, he spent most of his career as a prosecutor with the Illinois ARDC. That's the Attorney Registration and Discipline Commission. The ARDC is the body in Illinois that regulates attorneys. It's like the State Bar of California or departments and courts in other states that are responsible for attorney licensing and attorney discipline. Nowadays, though, Jim isn't prosecuting lawyers for breaking rules. He's now defending him. But that's just one part of his practice. He also counsels law firms and businesses about complying with legal ethics rules. He helps out people applying to the bar to become attorneys. And he also branches out and defends lawyers in malpractice cases. Since he was last on the show, he's launched his own podcast called Legal Ethics Now and Next, which I encourage you to check out. Since we've talked, you have a podcast. How's that going? That's going well. I actually I had a sort of unplanned uh, delay in getting to doing some episodes over the summer, just with one thing and another. A lot of work I was busy with, happily enough, some family things, and doing a bunch of other CLE work. And I have a presentation that I'm doing for the ABA in February down in Puerto Rico. And I had to write a big article for that. And what's, you know, the, what's the topic of? It's for the construction law section. And it's about AI and ethics and the you know uses of and potential pitfalls so, so, of. So interesting. So the construction group at ABA, what, what specifically brought them to you or what do they want to cover? Like how is it used there in construction law? I think I had blogged a little bit or, or one of my podcasts maybe was about the AI issues and things like that. And they caught a hold of that. And, you know, they, like a lot of groups, want to have an ethics component to what they do. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how they arrived at, at AI, but, you know, construction law involves a lot of different yeah. aspects, right? We, we do know? a lot of, we do a lot of help with document reviews, big, huge document reviews in uh, construction. And there so you go. They use AI there, but I just wonder what other areas... Yeah. Well, you know, contract review, it can be a big thing for the midsize and larger firms that do this kind of work. It doesn't always have to involve litigation, although, you know, construction law, I know, often does. But and AI in general as a trend in practice is something that they wanted to look at. So I wound up putting a big uh, spiel together on that and getting myself more and more acquainted with AI and what it is and is not and how it might work and how it might falter sometimes. I know we talked about that on an earlier right. episode, right? And the, the duty to supervise robots. And I was being sort of flip about that in my phrasing, but that's a real thing. No, you it know? is a thing. It's a major thing because of algorithms and the way they work. You can't just let it go, you know, let it rip and see what happens. You have to be able to make sure, like in, with the discovery work, that it's calling the right information and not excluding other information that it should include. But... It really is. I mean, what, especially with the contract stuff, you know, if a firm is using AI to review contracts in, in bulk and look for ways that they need to be changed or updated or, or renegotiated in some way, that has to be done really precisely. And the duty to supervise really comes into effect, whether you say you're supervising the robot or not, it's really still your work, you know, and you, you can trust the AI to some degree. But some of the articles I read as I as I composed my own materials for this stuff, discussed how you could trust the AI's cognition in the same way that you would. Right. No, trust but person. verify, right? You got to check your associates work, mm -hmm. make sure I'm sure that it's fine, but you still got to make sure that's right. So as you alluded to, we, we've talked about that. We've talked about AI. So the first, when you were here five years ago, we talked about Rule 1.1, the duty of competency, basically, and what that means to, yes. to keep up with tech. Then we did a revisit of that. And then we, we had the AI episode 
but nowadays, what are you seeing? You know, what what's out there legal ethics wise and bubbling up as it relates to legal tech or just changes and innovations in, in legal industry? Well, we're still talking about that duty of competence, you know, that we're now up to 40 states that uh, have adopted it in one form or another. And it's it's not one form. You know, the, the ABA model rule has it in a certain way, and um, Illinois has adopted that wholesale. But other states do it a bit differently. And they... Like some require CLE, right? I, I was just going to say, some require you to go through actual Which uh, is training. probably best case, because I think nowadays most attorneys understand that Tech is creeping in in many ways. It used to be just mainly e-discovery and maybe practice management like Clio, but now it's everywhere. You alluded to contracts AI, and it's. I feel like people, lawyers, understand that, but I, I think that if you require CLEs, just like you do ethics CLEs, that would be helpful. I think so too. I mean, I think there's some resistance to that in the profession because, uh, like, like in Illinois, we have the requirement that you take a mental health related right. CLE, get those hours, diversity inclusion, and so forth. And those are requirements, and some people bristle a little bit at adding yet another one of those on. So, still seeing 1.1, 1.1 issues and the duty competence, keep up on tech. What else are you seeing? Going back to the AI thing and the concepts of supervising. It and the non-lawyer assistance that you get. In doing my research that I was alluding to before, I I looked at Arizona Rule 5.3. 5.3 is generally the supervising rule, right? It is in Illinois as well. But they retooled theirs very recently because of their abolishment of Rule 5.4, which is about non-lawyer ownership of law firms. And that's a whole big issue, obviously, today. But it affected Rule 5.3, and what it did in Arizona is prompt them to detail more thoroughly than I've seen in, in most rules of professional conduct what it really means to have reasonable measures in place to supervise the assistance that you get. And this can apply to humans or to computer software or what have you. But it encourages the lawyer to think about what work the non-lawyer is really doing and how their own subjective approach can influence what the work is and what the lawyer's mindset is. It encourages the lawyer to think of themselves not just as a supervisor, but an instructor about the substantive work, whatever Are, are it these is. in the notes? This is in the notes to the Arizona rule? No, this, this, is in the rule is, this is in the rule itself, I think. And I really like that concept of instructor. And it, it, it discusses making sure that the non-lawyer is aware of things like conflicts of interest and confidentiality of information issues. And, it, you know, really precisely breaking down what supervision means. And, and doing that in the context now of a state, a jurisdiction where lawyers and non-lawyers are going to be working so much more closely together or or can in the provision of legal services. I just thought that was a really interesting development that has repercussions for lawyers working with tech as well. Rule 5.4 says non-lawyers can't own a law firm, can't have an ownership interest in in, in the law firm as a going concern. Europe has been on the other side for a a while. Mm -hmm. Private non-lawyers can own law firms and most of Europe, I think. Arizona changed it. Are there, to my knowledge, Utah, they have a sandbox. Are there any other states that, that permit this? That's really it. California was looking at it. Uh, unless you, I mean, D.C. counts. Washington, D.C. counts. And they were way ahead of this. They changed this in 1991 to allow for some non-lawyer ownership of some entities. And that was really structured to accommodate lobbying firms. Of course. <laughs> of course. That's so, what that so was let's about. talk about it. Is, is, is the reason that is in existence. It's been a rule is that you didn't want to have people that were not lawyers involved in 
the ownership of the law firm because it was feared that the people that are not lawyers might influence the legal decisions made by the lawyer because the business people want to make, make a buck. Right. That still is feared by those who oppose this. And when California was looking at it and putting online, you know, their proposal for it and soliciting comments, they got like a tidal wave of comments all about that. I saw that. And a lot of it came from the consumer attorneys organization Mm -hmm. there, which is interesting to me because a lot of plaintiff's firms, they get funding, you know, from people that are not lawyers, they're they're financiers, but there's clear rules that say they can't be influenced by the litigation funders. So I, I thought that would, that was curious to me. Yeah. They would push back on that. Yeah. But I mean, but uh, lawyers are are protective of what we have, you know, and I can see, you know, I I like to think I'm not too biased or or ideological one side or another, but I do favor um, the, the, experimentation or the testing of, of different methods. That's what's a, part of what's attracted to me about the sandbox idea that Utah actually just extended through right. 2027. And it's not that there shouldn't be a, a roadmap or an idea of what we're doing here, but it's it's good for data gathering purposes. Right. Whenever this issue comes up, I like to look at, well, what does the data tell us? And sometimes it tells us one thing and sometimes another, like the, the data out of UK where this, as you say, this kind of uh, model has been operating for some time now, about 10 years, it doesn't lead you to a firm conclusion that it has really improved access to justice in the way that maybe it was envisioned. Well, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting topic, too, because if you think about it, in theory, it should. I mean, that's the thinking that, like, for instance, Washington, they had those uh, triple OTs where they yes. could help with family law matters. But mm-hmm. They, quote unquote, sunsetted that a couple of years ago after some outcries quickly and kind of like without a lot of public input. They sunsetted that. But that is a type of situation where it probably was providing access to justice. But going back to you see what's when these rules like four, 5.4 are more liberalized and business people can get involved. You see things like the, the, you know, the big accounting firms want to get in. So I see where that might happen, where you get business people trying to make a buck because that's what the business to do. And that's where they come in and take advantage of this. So I, I do get that, but. Sure. And, and when, when lawyers uh, do object to this kind of system, they bring up, well, what if Google does this or that? Yeah. What if Amazon does this or that? Well, it hasn't happened yet. No. You know, and this is, like I said, this is where I like to look at what the data is and look at Utah and Arizona. Utah in particular puts out monthly reports of what the sandbox is up to. And the numbers are really interesting. I'm going to try not to be too tedious about it, but 87 applications, 59 approved. Of the others, some were denied, some were tabled, and some withdrew. 87.8% of the legal services that were delivered were delivered by a lawyer or by software like form or document completion software guided by Does, does it a break lawyer. down? Is this like a kind of a for-profit business or is it kind of an access to justice business focus or does it break that down? I mean – I think probably each of them would say they're trying to do access to justice in one way or another. And I'll, I'll get in a second to what areas they're covering. And you can see if you think that's improving access to justice. But the other percentage number I had is 12.9% of the legal services delivered by these entities were delivered by a non-lawyer with lawyer involvement. So the scenario of, oh, it's just going to be a bunch of non-lawyers doing law work not really it's software not right it's not really what's happening a lawyer's behind it first of all and second of all if it's being done it's being done either by a lawyer or by software that that was shaped by with the lawyer's input which i think is a good development and right. and in the in the in terms of the subject areas we're talking about 38% in the realm of generally what's called business ip 
contracts or warranties type work, uh, entity incorporation. 26.8% military and veterans benefits. So I call that access. That's kind of access to justice. Those, I would also I would also think that a lot of the business formation, yes, is, is access to yes, justice. Yes, because exactly. it's not just a matter of like less affluent people, like middle class people can't afford. They want to start a business, they can't afford it completely. Worse. I was going to point that out because a lot of the objectors can be heard to say, well, you know, if you look at who's doing the startups in these things or who's creating these kind of entities, they're not going out and doing landlord tenant defense. They're not doing domestic violence work. They're not, you know, and they, they start ticking off the traditional areas of legal aid work, which is, you know, close to me. That's where I started my career right. doing that stuff. And my point about that is, yes, all that is a continues to be scandalously enough an, a, a major need in America, right, for those legal services. But the head of uh, IAALS, the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, is a guy named Jim Sandman, and he was the former head of the Legal Services Corporation, so like the top guy at Legal Aid, right? And he says, look, this isn't supposed to be all about that. As you just said, there are middle-class people who own businesses, who own real estate, you know, maybe because they inherited it or something, and maybe they don't derive a ton of income from it or not as much as they'd like, but they have legal needs. And the problem is maybe they don't see them as legal needs or they don't know how to get and, and simply can't afford the legal services that they actually do need. And that's a huge part of what this kind of program is supposed to address. And interestingly, housing is way down. All the other percentages in terms of the what the Utah entities are addressing, they're, they're in the single digits. And uh, housing doesn't even well, wait. and think about it. It's only two states. I mean, Utah is the right. first. It's still new. So there's, there hasn't been a lot of opportunity for this to happen. And, you know, I'm a proponent of this. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not buying the Google argument. If anybody's going to be accounting firms. But again, they're not catering to they're not catering to middle class. They're not, they're not catering to the less affluent. They're not going after plaintiff's cases. So that's why I don't buy all those arguments. Right. And the other f- thing that kind of rubs me the wrong way is I've been at these bar associations and stuff where people will stand up and go, you know, I'm a domestic lawyer. I'm this type of lawyer and this is going to take away my business. And I suppose at some level that might be true. But the fact of the matter is, unless they're doing a pro bono and they've got that like set up as part of their practice, they're not serving these people. So it's not taking business away from them. So I think that's a very weak argument too. Like they're not doing this work. Mm -hmm. They're not going to work for free. Right. I I think I'd said that too on one of my podcasts when I first noticed the military and veterans benefits aspect. Again, I flashed back to my early experience. We didn't do that kind of benefits work, but we did unemployment. We did social security occasionally. That kind of got phased out. But, you know, other uh, other state benefits type work, no one else was doing that. No one else but legal aid lawyers in the country was doing that kind of work. And even they don't do the veterans stuff. So, you know, that's a population that can be served and can be served, I was going to say, to relate it back to tech, can be served by a tech-driven practice that has adequate capitalization to afford software that will get the clients where they need to go. When we come back, Jim goes deeper into the numbers about consumer complaints that have arisen in those jurisdictions that are listing their rules like 5.4. Jim also discusses his prediction about whether other states will follow and let those that are not lawyers participate in legal services companies. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. This podcast is brought to you by Percipient, a legal services company powered by technology. Percipient helps legal teams tackle legal operations, electronic document review, and process automation. Percipient services include managed document review, subpoena compliance, cyber incident response, 
and also helps legal teams provide clients with process-driven legal support. To learn more, visit percipient.co. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. All right, let's pick back up my conversation with ethics attorney Jim Dopke. The other thing that's interesting, too, is I don't know if you've heard about this, and I didn't, I don't know all the facts, but there's a company, uh, I believe it's a New York-based, called Upsolve, and they help with yes. bankruptcies. Yes. You know, and they won in New York. They basically, short story, they, they won the ability to be exempt from some of the model rules of professional conduct that might, or not rules of professional conduct that might have prevented them from providing assistance and as people not lawyers right with helping them fill out bankruptcy forms but then i think it was maryland or delaware i can't remember which somewhere up there court said no 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 mm-hmm. even though you're mainly software you're really practicing law which i don't know that that's true you're it is so i don't think software can practice law because it's helping you fill out a form it's asking you questions. I guess if it's an expert system, it could have some opinions built in, but I don't, I don't see it working that way. And I think that's troublesome that a court would view it as that, that a soft, software could do that. Yeah. There was the ticket case out of Florida too, which was uh, the ultimate goal was to hook people up with a lawyer who could help them defend a traffic ticket. It was more akin to a referral service than anything else. But as part of the initial onboarding, it had an algorithm that would determine whether it was worth it to defend this ticket. And I think that was the sticking point for the Florida court, which did say in a majority opinion that this is the unauthorized practice of law and can't go forward. But the dissent in that case was very strong, you know, and pointed out, I think, or, or came to the same conclusion that you're coming to, too, which is a lot of the software really isn't, you know, even if it does some level of dis discrimination, uh, you know, discriminatory judgment, and I don't mean in the, right, you know, right. in the bad sense, but uh, some level no, it's telling of di- what discernment is really right, what Right, it's telling you what variable to pick. All right, is your situation A, then pick X. If your situation is B, pick Y. Right. Is that really a legal judgment, or does that involve and legal skill? Going back to the access to justice issue, if they were going to do it on their own, have no clue, I mean, this is definitely better. I mean, even if you like believe, truly believe that there's off like a piece of software can offer you a legal opinion, mm-hmm. it's still better. And, from, and the other, you know, going to your AI point, I can see that argument, I guess, where if AI if you use an algorithm to actually synthesize the information you're giving to it and spit something on the back end and tell you how to act, I can see that argument there. But going back to the point about supervising AI. I mean, can't you kind of fix it by making sure it's accurate, you know, and, right. and, and having some sort of testing and knowing, you know. And by having the entity that's providing these services, the, the corporate entity, whatever it is, agree to abide by the rules of professional conduct. It, that's what Arizona and Utah do. Right. Both of them. And, you know, the, the idea that they are lawless and don't have any ethical obligations whatsoever, that's not correct. I mean, we, it, and I wouldn't advocate for a system that would allow that. Both Utah and Arizona have regulatory structures for this. In fact, Utah, again, on their monthly reports, they count every month how many complaints they get. But overall, it's 12. 12 in their whole time of operating the sandbox. So 12 and against the, the companies against that are not the, fully. Exactly. Employed. And only a few of those were actual suggestions that someone experienced actual harm. Yeah, I think I read it. I mean, I think the article is a maybe a year old now, but I think I read in that Washington case, I don't think they had any complaints. No. The problem there was they didn't have that many triple LTs either. Right, and right, the, right. the court was able to say this isn't worth it. That well, was their hook. Well, so 
if you hire a lawyer and the lawyer makes a mistake, you sue him for malpractice, right? So in generally, that's a monetary recovery. You got the same kind of recourse here with the, with the company. If you know they got, they're going to have insurance. If they made a mistake, if you're if their software told you to fill out a form correctly, you have the same kind of you have the that's the only recourse you can do, right? right. You sue them for and you get damages. Now I guess it depends on what the type of law is. Like if you lose custody of your kid or something, that's a whole different story. But well, sure, and uh, but I don't know how. I mean, Utah, two point nine percent of the entities are handling some kind of marriage or family domestic relations uh, matter. Two point nine. That's not to say it wouldn't be a serious problem if something happened, but how likely is it? And how likely is it that it can't be corrected by a, a monetary judgment, as you say? And, and you know, to put an even finer point on it, lawyers aren't always required to have malpractice insurance. They're not in Illinois. We have certain regulatory... Right, and a company would. A company's going to not require... I guess maybe they are, maybe they're not, but they're going to have insurance unless they're... Of some kind, I would man. imagine. And, right. and most lawyers do anyway. Our, right. The way our Supreme Court rules work out, there's no express requirement that you have it, but... If you want to operate in a limited liability entity, you're going to have it. And if you want to register and not take a bunch of courses uh, that at the ARDC's behest every couple of years, you're going to have malpractice insurance then too. So that protection may be there for legal clients, but what if it isn't? And you know now they're left without a, a meaningful remedy. So is the profession then, is the legal profession providing those clients with anything any more protection than a business right. would. The other issue too is for a lot of this stuff, the question really becomes, is it the practice of law? I'm sure some of the decisions software will make for you maybe can be viewed as that, but a lot of it is not. I don't, I don't think it is, right? Like for instance, you know, there's always a dispute. Is document review in litigation, is that really the practice of law? Like some opinions will say, yeah, but many, many, many say it's not, you know? Right, and I think it's, the more efficiencies that the software can create, I think the easier it is to say it really isn't the practice of law. There's still a lot of discernment that lawyers have to do in that context to determine relevance, you know, or in the context of contract review to determine what contract language should be in or out and what should be phrased in a certain way in order to protect the client's interest. I don't think the AI knows how to protect the client's interest. It knows a lot of things about how many times a certain term appears in one contract versus another. It might be able even to determine how often certain contract language is challenged in litigation or something. And, you know, that, that, and that can be valuable information. Or there's the software that can predict outcomes of litigation based on where it is or what court, what tribunal, right. what judge, whatever. You know, it, there is that. But is that the practice of law or is it just as, assembling Well, data? I would argue like the jurisdiction one, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, that's odds, right? You know, like, all right, historically, this has been a good jurisdiction for this, but not this. That, that's just numbers, right? I right. Mean, it's, right. I mean, yeah, you do want to go to a lawyer that knows that stuff and can be strategic in that. But the stuff we're talking about is not, at least on the access to justice, Issue that that's not, I don't think those just no, that doesn't matter to a veteran who needs benefits no. and you know can't get the forms together or doesn't know where they are or or you know just can't get the stuff to the appropriate agency in the correct way. And here's a software program that'll help and and get this person some money to live on. That doesn't have anything. I mean, benefits work in general, it's it is the practice of law, or it can be, especially you have to advocate for someone to get benefits that they otherwise might be deemed ineligible for wrongly. 
but a lawyer can still do that. The software isn't doing that, I don't think. Right, yeah. So the other thing that occurs to me too is regardless of whether it's access to justice or you're just a company that wants to get your legal work done more efficiently, so you engage an entity, be it a law firm or a software company has has lawyers, like if you use both, if you use both tech and lawyers, you know, that's best case because, you know, Gary Kasparov, he, I think he's the one that said tech plus humans wins every time. Sure. And that you know, it's the best of both worlds because you, know, you have, you have tech push whatever the project is 75% of the way through. And then you have the, the lawyer do the 25% to make sure that the tech did it right. And it's, it's going to bring costs down because you're not paying a human for hundred percent of the work. Right. Again, that's what rule 5.4 revision efforts are really aimed at. You know, a, a, a model in which a law firm can receive investment that can allow for the, in turn, the law firm's investment in tech that can achieve that kind of efficiency and end. Yeah, that's the other thing too that I think is lost on some. Again, we have our biases, so mm-hmm. you know we should probably have somebody that, that disagrees with us in here. But that's the other thing too is I think it's lost in the people that oppose this. Bring that tech into your law firm. You're going to be able to serve more clients. If you probably are doing stuff on a flat fee, depending on what it is, like some of this work, you can do more of it, right? And right. spend less of your time. So it's a benefit right. to everybody. Well, like I say, I can give some of the opposing arguments and believe some of them too. You know, I don't want lawyers to be foreclosed from doing real estate closings. Or I can recognize too the necessarily bespoke nature of some kinds of, of law work. You know, I, I think maybe some of the criticism here is we're just going to algorithmize. Yeah, that's the, not going to happen. Practice. I mean, to, to your point, there's very bespoke work. You want the best trial lawyer. You know, you want for deals, you know, or if, if it could custody, maybe, you know, you got to bite the bullet and you, you figure out how to pay for it, but you need the best advocate to get keep your kid or whatever. Absolutely. So. And you know, my own work I think of as absolutely very, 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 very bespoke. You know, and I would love to be able to systematize and streamline some more of it, but every situation that comes to me has its own odd configuration by the time it gets to me and then it gets weirder and weirder. And, you know, maybe that's a bias of mine because having been at the ARDC for as long as I have, again, you're just, you're coming in in the middle of the movie most of the time. You know, a lot of things have already gone kind of haywire and you're being asked to evaluate, was this misconduct or was it not? And so, like I said, every, every fact pattern I get seems totally unique to me. Right. And a a computer maybe best case can kind of put in a bucket for you and say, hey, here's what you're looking at, but you've got to figure out what the really scenario is. Right. And th- can it do that more quickly or more efficiently than I do it? I don't know. I tend to doubt that. And and so, or not in a way that would be worth right. spending money. Again, it goes you, know? you computer. Let's just say that there, there is something, you know, the tech that you do. It's only getting part way. You've got to come in yeah. and take it yeah. to the final. And so lawyers who say, look, my work doesn't fit that model, but other people are going to figure out how to make something like it fit their algorithm-based model, and I'm going to be you know, frozen out from that. I'm sympathetic to that. I don't really want to see that happen. But I, don't th- I don't think that is, because if you think about the stuff that really is software is hitting, it's, it's volume work. It's the same yes. thing over and over and over. It's form-based work. Like going back to upsolve a bankruptcy. I mean, you go to a bankruptcy lawyer – a lot of them are using software to fill these forms. Sure, so. sure. And there are ways to, you know, combine, not not with common ownership, but to operate. I, I advise lawyers on this somewhat regularly, to operate dual profession 
businesses, you know, whether it, if it's often lawyer and uh, financial advisor, you know, a lawyer can do that. There have to be appropriate disclosures, you have to watch very carefully for conflicts of interest and make sure you're not soliciting business in the wrong way, make sure the client understands which hat you're wearing when, right. you know, there, there are regulatory hurdles to overcome, but it can be done, you know? And one way you can look at that is to say, well, then why do we need these changes? Why do we need common ownership? Again, it's, in, uh, it's about the combination of capital that can be put together in these commonly owned entities that can then be used to streamline the services. That's what I think the real goal is. And I don't think it's a stalking horse for anything as bad as what yeah. the objectors have yeah, in I mind. Think that I could, so going back to the, rule, the reason for Rule 5.4, you need an attorney to render independent judgment. You don't you want him to be pressured by a profit motive or something. And I, I could... You know, obviously the classic example would be, you know, let's say you could have non-lawyer ownership of a, a law firm and there's straight litigation and it's contingency. Or I guess go either way where they could either, you know, the, the non-lawyer, the, the business person could encourage the lawyer to settle maybe earlier than the lawyer would have. And if, if they'd gone on, they would have gotten more recovery. Or in the reverse, if it's a defense work, the business person this is the worst case would encourage the lawyer not to settle right. as quick as possible. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, the, the, the Arizona program is interesting on this point because they don't have the, the depth of data available right. publicly that, that Utah puts out, but they do have a, a yearly report. The 2021 is still the most recent, but they had 15 entities that came about in 2021, which was the first year of their program being in effect. Only 15, you know, and there is one I noticed that does do injury law. And the way they have the information is they have the, the entity disclose the ownership percentage in round numbers, you know, 50, above 50, below 50, that kind of thing, who makes the decisions and who the compliance lawyer is. The entity has to designate a lawyer for compliance with the Arizona Rules of Professional Conduct and all the other rules that, that go along with the establishment of the entity itself. So if you're just looking at the very basic kind of chart, like, wow, here's a, uh, an entity that's mostly or, or even wholly owned by non-lawyers, but a lawyer is working with them and making decisions relating to the cases, is that set of facts going to bring about that kind of nightmare yeah, scenario? Yeah, I don't know. I, I can see the other thing too is, like, let's go back to tech where, you know, you've got a business person and a lawyer and it's, it's litigation work where the business person might look at the, you know, the numbers and the data and say, ah, don't, let's not take this case. Let's not take this case right. because, you know, historically it has one where without pre-tech, the lawyer might take it on his gut. Right. And so sure. maybe that plaintiff or yeah, maybe it's pretty joint plaintiff. Maybe the plaintiff's not served. Right. I guess well, that could it could happen. happen. It could happen. But lawyer's gut sometimes tells them, I don't want to take this case because I'm going to be financially upside down in a year, you know, or the litigation funder, to your point, will say, you know, we have to be done with this case because right. the funding is not. Well, you, litigation funding is interesting, too. It's similar that because they put up these walls that, you know, they try to insulate. Sure. The funders from the lawyers and the clients, there is no influence, so. Right. But money is an influence all the time, though, you know, and even if there are those walls about and, and particularly walls that prevent decision making from being done on the basis only of money, 
and there there have to be those walls there anyway. But money is a factor in decision making, though, for for lawyers, whoever is doing the funding. You know, if it's the client, they're conscious of it. If it's the lawyer themselves, they're conscious of it. We've already hit on this. Utilizing tech is a benefit to the client, so you've got that that counter that counterpoint. So you know, right? If a law firm wants to buy a tech company and needs to cede some sort of ownership in the ultimate entity to the owners of the tech company, I mean, it still is. You know, in that situation, it's a win-win. It should be. I mean, at least in theory, it should be. And it doesn't, you know, from from what I can tell from the Utah and Arizona programs, it doesn't look like disadvantages are developing, at least. And uh, understanding this, this is the short term here. We are in the early stages of these things being even tried. But it seems to me that people are being reached by these entities that wouldn't otherwise be reached. Services are being performed Absolutely. that wouldn't otherwise be performed. And they're being done in a, in a streamlined way that's beneficial to everybody involved. It's not dissimilar to LegalZoom and companies like that because yeah. that was the argument then. Oh, you know, you need a lawyer to draft this complaint. You need a lawyer to file this Legal this, Zoom, uh, this this entity legal this zoom is one of the the 15 arizona entities you know and that's uh, you know their their model has been around for a long yep. time and know? it's a benefit because it like we've talked about it permits people to use their service that might otherwise not be able to afford attorneys now i'm sure there are some that could you know they have the wherewithal to hire an attorney but they still then you know use legal zoom to do their legal you know, file you know, get their papers ready for filing, whatever. But sure, sure. I, think, I still think it's a, a game. It's a net game. I would have to think so. And, you know, if 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 people start out that way, is that that bad? You know, I, again, knowing what I know from my ARDC work over the years, you could say, well, if they start off on their own and, and goof it up, then a lawyer has to come in and fix it later and it's more money. And trust me, I've seen those kinds of things yeah. happen. You know, the uh, a situation goes haywire because it wasn't approached correctly in the first place. We get that, right? But it doesn't follow to me logically that these new models and only these new models are going to produce that effect, right? Things go haywire when they do, you know, and, and yeah. things go wrong when they do. And it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily just because, well, some non-lawyer was involved or, you know, some non-lawyer had an ownership interest in this entity. And that's why. To me, it doesn't stand to reason given the other potential benefits. So I think you've answered the question, but if you had a crystal ball, do you think other states start relaxing 5.4? I think at least one other will probably in the next couple of years. I don't know who. It won't be Illinois. <laughs> and it probably won't be Florida. And it probably won't be the other more restrictive East Coast jurisdiction that you mentioned on the Upsolve case. Yeah. But I think someone else will probably, I guess, won't be California. It might be, I mean, ISBA magazine had some articles about these issues most recently. And someone in there had a quote about how in California, one thing that militates against doing it there is the mess that the California bar is in enforcement wise. And yeah, okay. You know, I can sort of see that maybe that's not the state where you want to. Which is interesting because that's the state, Silicon Valley. I mean, that's where uh, right. a lot of. And tons and tons and tons of legal consumers, right? I mean, just a huge market. Well, biggest state. Yeah, right. And, um, and yet their bar discipline system is not functional. But maybe right you now. don't need all 50 states because then, you know, if you want to set up a company and you want to get investment or ownership from people that aren't lawyers, just. Go to one of these states, you know? Yeah, yeah. And multi-jurisdictional practice being what it is, maybe you can get. And there are ethics opinions, too, that discuss 
okay, what if you're a lawyer in one state that doesn't have a modified 5.4 and you want to do something in a state that does? So far, you can be a passive investor in an entity like that. Even if like if I'm in Illinois and I want to invest in an Arizona entity, I can do that with some safeguards and and restrictions. I think those kinds of things are going to advance as well. Um, I think we'll see more ethics opinions that say, well, you can do this on this basis. You can be involved on another basis. At the end of the day, too, is not good. It's early, so we can't take these numbers as gospel, but doesn't it come down to complaints <laughs> and mistakes? That's why I always <laughs> look at that part of the Utah reports. I mean, 12 complaints over a couple of years. Do you know how many legal matters did they quantify that? How many legal matters in Utah were handled? They say they give a number that's something like 34,000 legal services have been provided. Okay, so 34,000 pieces of legal services in Illinois. How many complaints will? arise from that? Well, that number is declining, sort of. It's bouncing back up a little now as hopefully the pandemic continues to to wane in a way. But it was on the decline before the pandemic, too. We used to see, when I was still working there, I, I stopped working there in 2013. And then we would still see five to 6,000 investigations per year. Now it's and there's more. no real way of quantifying how many legal matters were handled by attorneys in Illinois. Oh, no. Yeah, no. We, this is only a partial measure of that. And an investigation could be reporting something that happened 20 years ago. And it doesn't mean that anything comes of it either, right? No, right. But I was going to say it's now down to... 3,500 to 4,000 investigations a year. And Illinois is the right. largest legal market. You so know? If, I, if I had to guess, well, I don't know, I don't want to guess. That number is probably higher than 12. For, yeah, for well, 000. right, yeah. And, you know, the, but Utah says it's like one in every 2,000 gets some kind of complaint. But they identify three varieties of harm that they're looking for. And if it doesn't... Which are? Oh, uh, um, loss of a legal right failure to recognize a legal right and therefore uh, failure to act on it. And there's one other. So it's I malpractice. Can't remember. It, it, malpractice. Yes, yes, it's malpractice stuff. And if it's not one of those three, they sort it into a different bucket. But the 12 are complaints that ticked off one of those boxes. Um, now, are those 12, do they validate them? No. So we don't, we don't even know how many of those are actually legit. It doesn't seem like any of them really were, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, it seems they haven't taken formal action that I know of. And if I'm reading the report right, it says we we looked at it and our systems uh, dealt with these appropriately, meaning we closed them. You know, just like the administrator of the ARDC closes the vast majority of investigations they get every year. These are imperfect measures of who's doing what and how many times or who's doing what and how much. But they're the measures we can look at, you know, the ARDC numbers are the measures I'm most familiar with, right? But the Utah, uh, Utah captures a lot of good data about this 34,000 legal services, they know that, you know, and to have a very, very minimal level of complaints about it is a good sign. Well, it's hard to dispute it, right? You can't go and say, well, they're going to be harmed, because they don't have the benefit of an attorney's training and experience. Uh, you know, that's kind of can counteract that argument a little right. bit. Right. I think about it a lot in the context of complaints, who's complaining and why, you know. And when I when I think about the declining number of ARDC investigations, I think of the rise of things like Yelp reviews, Google reviews, right. the ripoff report, um, all that kind of stuff that really started becoming more heavily used by consumers in a lot of areas over the time that I worked there. And I think people are able to sort of use those, vent their complaints, and not have to get involved in the whole regulatory system, which maybe they find Yeah, preferable. because to your point, a lot of them just, they're mad because they don't like the outcome. 
Well, well, the other thing, a lot of lawyers not returning calls. Well, that's you know, a, that's a very endemic in the industry. Oh, of course, of course, and and yet it's a kind of disciplinary complaint that can be kind of worked out in the investigative stage. You know, is the lawyer on point? And sometimes the lawyer can write back and say, "I was not on point during this time because I had a family health right. matter or something, and I tried to advise all my clients, but I missed in this one." And and they reestablish contact, and things are better, and that allows for a closure of a disciplinary investigation as opposed to someone who's really offline and abandons their practice or something on the on the really horrendous end of it. But I think clients sometimes and other customers of legal services do want to complain about outcomes. And that is another basis on which to, yeah. uh, to say, well, that doesn't mean that there was actual misconduct or even actual malpractice. It's just the outcome didn't go the way you wanted. And that's a that's a well-known reason to close a, a disciplinary investigation at, at ARDC. And it should be still in this context too. You know, the, the fact of non-lawyer ownership doesn't really change that. But even that, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of, uh, the, like Utah anyway, is taking in a lot of complaints along those lines. Well, as the judges are often, they will often say, I hope they consider the totality of the circumstances yeah. before they reject these liberalizations of Rule 5.4. I hope so, too. Jim, as always, thanks uh, Thanks for coming on the show. Podcast, where can people go to, to find you? I post each episode on my law firm's website, which is rsmdlaw.com. It's also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So look for it there. It's called Legal Ethics Now and Next. And I only have five episodes, but I'm going to do some more uh, here coming up soon. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.